please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The Lord does strange things to services to make us serious and ready for the word. For example, standing in that line of people to join this church this Sunday was to be Tom Strahan. And Tom died on Thursday night, just fell over of a heart attack. So don't take for granted that you're here this morning. You're here by divine appointment. And God has a work to do in your life because you're here. And I'm glad you're here. And I pray that every part of this service will be significant in your life. The title of the message is, For God's Sake, Let Grace Be Grace. Let grace be grace comes from verse 6. But if it is by grace, that is, if the preservation of a remnant of believing Israel is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So let grace be grace. Don't put anything in the place of grace. And the other half of the title, for God's sake, comes from verse 4. What is God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself. You see those words? I have kept for myself. 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I kept them. I brought them to myself. I preserved them. They are there because of my work. Had there been no remnant, my name would have been disgraced. I will not let my name be disgraced. And therefore, I kept 7,000. For God's sake, let there be grace. And let grace be grace. Let's pray. Well, Father, that's our, that's our aim. That's what Bethlehem needs. That's what the 21st century world we live in needs. They need to let grace be grace for God's sake. And so, Lord, I ask that you would 
humble us and break us as a people before grace. I pray that we would feel how desperate we are without it. I pray that all the fullness of Christ would come to us now in pondering grace. I pray that we would feel the riches of His grace pouring on us and that we would embrace the fellowship of His suffering that Tom was praying about earlier and that we would enjoy the everlasting delight of His presence now and on into heaven where Tom Strand is today. Lord, I pray that any in this room who has not tasted saving grace would not only taste, but drink deeply this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, to understand grace, we need to get the flow of the thought here. So let's review. The main point of the passage is God has not rejected His people. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? Answer, by no means. So God is faithful. That's the main point. He keeps His promises. So those of us who have trusted in the promises of Romans 8 can bank on them because God will keep His promises both to Israel and to us. That's point number one, the main point over the whole passage. And He gives three reasons for it. Number one, we've seen already. Verse one, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I'm a Jew. I have not been rejected. I've been folded in. I've been included. I'm inheriting the promises. And though, and so God has not stopped taking an interest in his Jewish people. I'm one of them. That's argument number one. Argument number two is in verse two, namely foreknowledge. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I taken to be mine. I have married you. We have known each other. There's a covenant between us. And therefore, I will not forsake you. That's argument number two. Now, argument number three is new. And this is the one we linger over today because it's all about grace. The argument goes like this. In Elijah's day, there was a remnant. 7,000 people did not bow the knee to Baal. So it looked to Elijah like there was nobody among the Jewish people believing like he was. And then Paul says, just like that, in my day, there's a remnant. I'm part of it. All the other apostles are part of it. 5,000 people who believed in Jerusalem at Pentecost and after are part of it. God has not rejected his people. However, the argument is not simply the parallel between Elijah's day and Paul's day, 7,000 then, a remnant today. The argument isn't even this. That was a day of great Baal worship, slaughter of the prophets. And if 7,000 were believing in that day, This day is not a day of Baal worship, not a day of slaughter. Then how much more will there be a remnant in Paul's day? That's not the argument. What is the argument? What's the connection in Paul's mind between Elijah's day and his day? Let's read it, starting in the middle of verse 2. Do you not know that the Scripture says of Elijah... 
how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. They're seeking my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself. Notice who's acting here. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now look at the connection. So, the same way, too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. The connection between Elijah's day and Paul's day is sovereign grace. Now, let's be sure we see this. When Paul read in 1 Kings 19.18, the words which we read in verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. When Paul read that in the Hebrew, and you saw that particular form in the verb, I caused to remain. He heard in that causal idea in the Hebrew language, God's sovereign, gracious work. And he said, if it did it there, he's going to do it here. In other words, the link is not the likelihood that humans believed then. Therefore, there's a likelihood that humans will believe today. That's not the argument at all. The argument is, I kept for myself a remnant, and if I did it then, I'll do it today. This is not a likelihood of human responsiveness. This is a likelihood of divine consistency between what he did there and what he's doing today. Now, that is very important to see. Let's not make a mistake here. Let me clarify something that's not the case. Don't conclude from the words, I kept for myself, that it simply means I kept them alive. As though Jezebel and her sword was about to take all of them out, but I kept them alive. They're hidden in a cave somewhere. That is true. But that's not the point here. We know that's not the point because that point would not advance Paul's argument at all. The question that Paul is dealing with is not, are believing Jews being kept alive and protected from Herod? That's not anywhere on Paul's radar screen. The issue Paul is dealing with in chapters 9 to 11 is, are there any Jews who are believing in the Messiah and being saved? And therefore, when he draws the connection between Elijah's day and his day, the argument that works is in his day, God didn't just see to it that believers were kept alive. He saw to it that there were believers. That's the key. He saw to it there were 7,000 people. And today he is seeing to it, Paul says, that there's a remnant in his own day. Now, Paul expresses that with the words... Chosen by grace or according to the election of grace. Verse five. So, too, at the present time, there is 
As in Elijah's day, when God saw to it that there would be believers, so too now is there a remnant chosen by grace, or literally, according to the election of grace. Which means when Paul looked back on that day in Elijah's time, and he saw God causing there to remain a people for himself, what he saw was, well... If God took the decisive initiative to create and preserve a people for himself, he must have chosen to do so. And if he chose to do so, he chose by grace because they hadn't already gotten themselves ready for it. He brought that into being. And so Paul now draws out that inference in this verse and says, just as he kept 7000 men in the time of Elijah in the same way. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, this is huge, and you know that. Grace here is not what we often think it is. It's more than we think it is. Paul seems to be really jealous that we understand chosen by grace. He underlines, by grace, by grace. The underlining is called verse 6. Let's just read 5 and 6 and you feel the underlining. So too at the present time, in Paul's day, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now he underlines it. But if it is by grace, it is no longer On the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Now, that verse is a really significant underlining of by grace. Paul is really eager that this morning we don't kind of breeze over the words chosen by grace and just move on to something else real quick and not really get it, not have it land on us. What does it mean to be chosen by grace? So let's linger on this. Oh, let's get grace this morning. Here's a misunderstanding that I want to put aside right away. The contrast in verses five and six is not between works and faith. Which it is elsewhere in the book of Romans, like chapter three, verse twenty eight. Or chapter 9, verse 32. Frequently, Paul contrasts, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. That's not what he's doing here. The contrast here is between works and grace. That's very significant. He's not thinking, now works is the sort of stuff human beings do to earn favor with God and faith is what humans do with their wills to receive favor from God without working for it. That's true, and it's not in this text. He's not contrasting two kinds of human activity. One works, one faith. He's contrasting human activity and divine activity. Is that clear? He is contrasting my doings and God's grace. And his doings, that is absolutely crucial that we feel the force of this in this text. 
The point is this. If election is based on anything I do, it is no longer election by grace. If I provide or you provide the decisive act in causing God to choose me, it is not election by grace. That's the point of this text. My being chosen rests on nothing I do with my will or my body. It is by grace alone. Just think of this for a moment. Put yourself back into eternity where God did this, choosing, and ask what meaning grace would have if God, by his foreknowledge, as it were, were waiting, watching to see what we would make of our lives. And then, having watched and seen in accordance with our doings, our willings, chose us. What possible meaning could grace have in a scenario like that? He would be responder. He would be dependent. We would be providing all the decisive activity of our willing. And God would simply be accordingly Doing what he's supposed to do. That would not be grace. Not according to this text anyway. This text says it was not by anything we do. It was by grace. Now, to confirm that we're on the right track here, let's go back to chapter 9, verse 11. So if you have a Bible and you're watching with me, go there. And if you're just listening, listen carefully. Chapter 9, verse 11. We've been there two years ago. In case your memory isn't keen, let's do it again. These are the same point in two different chapters. He's talking about why God chose Jacob over Esau before they were born. And he says this, verse 11, chapter 9. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works. See all the parallels going on here? Election, works. But because of, and he doesn't say faith, he says, him who calls. Or literally, or in your version perhaps, the call. She was told the older will serve the younger. Notice all the parallels there. You got election happening before they were born or had done anything good or evil. You've got the denial that it's by works. You've got the contrast between works not and works and faith, but the contrast between works and God. What's the point? The point is election is free. Election is unconditional. It is gracious through and through. It is not elicited by anything we do. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is free. The spring of grace is God's electing initiative, not God's response to our initiative. Bottom line. How can Paul be sure that God's going to have a people? That he has not forsaken his Jewish people? That there will be a remnant 
in every generation, how can he be sure even more amazingly that one day the remnant will enfold the whole of the people? How can he be sure of that? Answer, sovereign grace. That's how he can be sure. God kept for himself 7,000 people and he saw to it that they did not bow the knee to Baal. And if God can see to it that there are 7,000 Jewish believers in Elijah's day, he can see to it someday that there are 7 million just like that. Without compromising anybody's personhood or anybody's accountability. Now, six applications for your life. Number one, learn that you were saved by grace and be humbled by the fact that God chose you and called you without reference to anything you did. Be humbled by that. Once upon a time, it may have been when you were six, and you need to be taught this because you didn't know that when you were six. I didn't. That's when I professed faith in Jesus. I don't have any memory of it. My mother just told me that's when it happened. Therefore, I have to learn what it means today for me to be a son of God. You need to learn it too, probably. And what we learn is that once upon a time I was dead, blind, hard, rebellious. And then suddenly Christ stopped looking foolish or insignificant. Sin became ugly and repulsive. I became tremblingly insecure And Christ shone as the true and only and necessary Savior. And I was drawn out irresistibly to say yes to Jesus. That's how we got saved. And oh, how that knowledge of grace should humble us. When you stand before the King at the last day at the gate of heaven. And he perhaps asks you, why are you here? Why are you trusting Jesus and not your sister? You will not answer. I guess I was smarter. I guess I was wiser. I guess I had a spiritual streak in me. You won't. I'll tell you exactly what you'll say. With tears streaming down your face and trembling in your voice, you're going to say, thank you. That's all you're going to say. Thank you. You know, this of my six points feels the most weighty to me because I want us to be a church like this. A church of broken people. A church of humble people. A church for whom grace has sunk down at the emotional level of your life. And made you feel, not just know, feel, I don't deserve anything good from God. 
I deserve only bad things to happen to me from God. Therefore, everything bad that happens to me is expected and not grumbled about. And everything good that happens to me is a surprise and fills me with thanksgiving and joy. I tell you, to be a part of a church filled with people like that would be heaven on earth. We are so critical. We are so murmuring and grumbling and demanding of our rights and anything that crosses us. We get in people's face and we get in God's face and we, we, we. You know why? Grace hasn't gone very deep. It hasn't gone very deep. I feel like I deserve to be treated well. Nobody should spread any rumors about me. Nobody should say false things about me at work. My wife should sure treat me different than she does. And on and on, my demandingness, my expectations that I deserve something good. We don't deserve anything if we understand grace. And therefore, when hard things come, like lamentations, it was good for me that I bore the weight of my youth. I will put my hand upon my mouth. I will not murmur against the Almighty. Be like Job, cover my head with dust. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So I just plead with you to pray for me and each other. Because I'm not like this nearly to the degree I want to be. Went home last night and as I got in, sat down, propped up in bed. Noelle's here lying down beside me. She can go to sleep in two seconds. I have to read myself to sleep for half an hour. I said to her before she went to sleep, I said, you heard me say this last night. She was sitting right where Tom is there as I said these kinds of things last night. I said, would you pray for me, Noelle, that I would become more gracious? I'm sorry that I'm such a quickly critical and slow to praise husband she said sure i said no i mean now <laughs> oh <laughs> and she did and it was sweet it was sweet and and she said did you know that talitha was taking notes and she wrote down pray for daddy so this is an invitation to pray for a pastor. Because if I were more like this, maybe we as a church would be more like this. If I murmured less and criticized less and praised more and were more affirming, then maybe we'd all be more like that. So let it come or let it go that way. Now, the other the others are more more quick. That was number one. Be humbled by grace. Number two. Since God can take for himself anybody he pleases, pray with confidence and boldness for the most hardened unbeliever that you love. Since God can take for himself anybody he pleases, pray with boldness and confidence for the most hardened unbeliever that you love. Sovereign grace is a massive incentive to pray with hope. If you believe 
that God must wait for the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and the spiritually dead to raise themselves from the grave, you can hang up the telephone of heaven. Because you don't have anything to ask Him that He can do. He can't do it. Don't ask Him. But if He can do it, if He can make eyes open, hearts get soft, deaf ears open to the gospel, blind eyes open to the glory of Jesus, dead hearts rise from the dead, then ask Him to do it. And do it with confidence. This issue is massively encouraging to prayer. Oh, I have known four years of such prayer. And God heard. Number three. Since God can take for Himself anyone He chooses, and He always does it through the mighty gospel, therefore, speak the gospel to everyone, no matter how far gone they seem to you to be. Because God is God. He does not base His choices on anybody's background, anybody's track record. Therefore, with tremendous confidence, get in the face of the most hardened sinner you know, 60 years of slut life, and say, God can save you. Jesus died. Believe, and you will be forgiven all of those years and have an everlasting. Speak to people with boldness, because God saves whom He pleases. And no track record rules them out. Number four. Since grace chose you, since grace called you, since grace keeps you, Christian, take risks with your money and your life for the sake of the poor and the perishing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword answer nobody? Why has God given us that kind of security so that if our throat is slit, nothing evil can happen to us? Why has He given us that kind of rock-solid, unshakable security in Him? I'll tell you why. To spend our money differently. To risk our lives differently. God did not choose you And call you and save you in order that you might say, I'm chosen, I'm called, and I'm safe. Off to a nice house, nice car, nice padlocks, nice retirement, nice world. Then we'll know who your God is. If God is our God... And we are as secure in Him as gracious election and gracious calling and gracious justification and gracious perseverance imply. We will be a very radical people. We will be a very radical people. I've been reading and praying with Noel and Talitha in the evenings through the Global Prayer Digest for November. It's all about peoples in China. I can't pronounce most of them. But I pray for them and, and they just make me ache because these 
these small peoples, 10, 15, 20, 30,000 peoples tucked away in the inner provinces, some of them near Tibet, have nothing, no witness whatsoever. There are no Christians nearby. It's going to take really risk-taking Christians to get there. Whether they're Chinese or American or Brazilian or from Tajikistan. There's a guy here last night from Tajikistan. And when I ask him, are you going to go back or go somewhere else? He smiles and says, I know what you're getting at. Yeah, I'm going back. I said, that's not what I'm getting at. He thought I meant, oh, you come here, you like America, you're going to stay. And that's not what I'm getting at. My point was, they need you in China. Not just Tajikistan. In other words, God is doing a great work in our day so that the risk takers are going to come from everywhere. And I just want lots and lots of them to come from us. So the fourth point is, if you are saved by grace and kept by grace, take risk with your money. And take risks with your life for the cause of the poor and the perishing. Fifth, exult in the God of grace. Love the God of grace. Enjoy the God of grace. Praise the God of grace. Get up in the morning and say, saved by grace, thank you, I love you. Go to work and say, saved by grace, thank you, I love you. Come home at night, greet whoever, roommate, (laughs) or wife, and say, saved by grace, I love you. That's the counterpart to the first point of humility. I hope they don't sound contradictory to you. The people who love God most, enjoy God most, cling to Him most, hug Him most, are the most broken people. They're the ones who have felt most deeply how desperate they are. So let's be a broken, happy people. Lastly, number six, and I close with this, and this is addressed to a small number of you, I hope, I believe, namely the unbelievers who came in and uh, you didn't know what you were getting in for and you're here and God brought you here and there's a closing word of sovereign grace for you. And here it is. God is speaking right now to unbelievers in this way. I'll just speak it on his behalf. Do not say, I may not be chosen. Rather, say, since all God's choosing is by grace alone, therefore, There is absolutely no reason to believe I am excluded. I'm going to say that again so it can land on you. Because if you will argue with your soul in this biblical way, God may break in on you. Do not say, I may not be chosen. Rather say, since the Bible says and God is communicating that all of his choosing is by grace alone on the basis of nothing I've ever done, nothing I am, nothing I'm thinking, nothing I'm willing, nothing in me or anything I have ever been or ever done. Since grace is totally free, I can never give God any reason or argument that I should be excluded. I tell you, when I first saw that years ago, I fell in love all over again with grace 
as an evangelistic power. Because I can now walk into a brothel, a bar, a school, and look anybody right in the eye and say, you may not give me one single solitary reason that you are not chosen by God. Not one. Therefore, let that open you to this invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. This is Jesus talking. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is, say it, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would not just inform our minds about grace, but that you would do grace. And I mean down in John Piper's six-year-old heart and 10-year-old heart and 15-year-old lustful heart and all the stuff that made me the sinner I am today. And I pray that new reflexes at home, new reflexes on the staff in the world, reading the newspaper, would be granted called grace. And do it, Lord, for others who feel the same need. And if they don't, I pray that you'd create the feeling.